Hi, I'm Chris Klink, and this is my Writing Table Podcast. Today's guest is Carrie Lonsdale. Carrie Lonsdale is a Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Amazon Charts, and number one Kindle best-selling author. She writes standalone and series-based, emotionally charged domestic dramas that readers have described as unputdownable and intricately plotted, and her books have been translated into 24 languages. She's the co-founder of the Women's Fiction Writers Association and recently launched the Tiki Lounge on Facebook for her readers. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks for having me. So many of my guests have credited their progress on the programming and relationships of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, and you were like in on the foundation of that. So can you take us back to the early days and tell us how you were involved in the founding of this incredible group? Back to 2013. Wow. <laughs> actually, actually, it probably would be 2012 because um, the group of us, that the founding members um, of um, the Women's Fiction Writers Association, we'd all just been elected to the, uh, the board for the women's fiction chapter of the Romance Writers Association. And then there's some things that happen on the board there in RWA, which changed the definition of women's fiction. And then we didn't feel like we really had a place there anymore. So we elected to step down as the board. And then over the next nine months, you know, under the um, Orly's lead is we put this association together that we had no idea if anybody would want to join or have anything to do with. And it took nine months. Um, I took up the position of the vice president of programs. I built the initial website, which is not the website anybody sees right now. And then we open up the doors. I think, what is it? September 9th or September? I can't remember the date. But um Opened the doors and gosh, within 24 hours, I think we had a couple hundred people who had joined, which just completely floored us. And it's been flourishing ever since. And um, I'm not as involved with it as I used to be. I think just because of my writing schedule, but it was uh, incredible to just see us actually create it and for it to actually open and actually happen and to see where it is today too. So with over a thousand members. And you, you were in on the beginning. So on the beginning, (laughs) whether they're heavily involved or not, I have seen those members come out like as some of us that are newbies that come Mm -hmm. out and, and you, I'm always shocked at like, who's coming out to support you and and help Mm -hmm. you. And so you know, I think we're all in this together. And so it's, it's a great organization. So thank you for, thank you for oh, doing well, that. Yeah. And I'm glad you're a member. I love it. So tell me, how did you decide to become a writer? I have always been a writer, just not fiction. So it started out where I was in marketing and I was a marketing executive and it was all technical. It was advertising copy. It was website copy and anything that went on brochures And it was, I think, about 2010 when I decided to stay home with my kids. At that time, they were entering middle school, which was a highly influential age. So I wanted to be home (laughs) at that time. And just within months, I was already going stir crazy. I didn't have that creative outlet that I'd had before. And I just started playing around and writing. I had a story idea, actually a story idea that I had had back in the 1990s, which I had actually tried to start writing something and said, I can't do this. I don't know how to (laughs) write fiction. And then um, 
picked up on that story ID again, and that's what became everything we keep. So, wow. So it was like, yeah. So 2010, it was, and I would say I, I did write a different book, which will be, is in a drawer, which I think everybody has the book in the drawer, and that was the one that. I went back to school on, so to speak, where you learn the craft of writing because it's so different than technical fiction, so different than technical writing. And so, but yeah, yeah. I came from the, I did medical, medical marketing and then mm-hmm. nonprofit. And that's the thing when I, so you know, <laughs> I know. And people would say, well, what, what have you written? And I've said, well, I've written a lot, but my name's not on most of it. A lot of white papers, a lot of articles. <laughs> Exactly. They're like, sure, you wrote that. Yeah. Um, tell us about your publishing journey. Publishing journey. So, yes, 2010, we have the book that's in the drawer. And then uh, I would say halfway through 2010 is when I started penning uh, Everything We Keep. And that was about a three-year process just to acquiring agents. So there was a lot of revisions, uh, a lot of querying. I think that book was queried over 160 times, So, but through all the different revisions. So 2013 acquired the agent. 2015 is when we finally got a bite from a publisher, and then it ended up going to auction because we had several, um, yeah, several Several offers came in, and so the contract was signed September of 2015, and first book published July of 2016. So if you're looking at when I started, when I decided to write fiction to see if I could really do it, so that was about six years for me, (laughs) between 2010 when it finally got published. In terms of what some folks tell us. Um, Yeah, some people it's overnight, and some people they'll work for it for decades and and I admire them for their persistence. I, and I did, I set a goal for myself as I said, I, I would give it five years. And if not, I would be going back in the workforce because I knew I was going to be at home for about five years. I said, okay, if I can do it, great. If not, then I'm back <laughs> in marketing. So I'm assuming your children have left the nest now? Pretty much, yes. My daughter is a senior in high school, and so she will be going to college next year, and my son is on his his second year in college. I write women's fiction, and I'll have people ask, what is women's fiction? And usually I'll joke and say, well, if I were a dude, it'd just be called fiction. How do you define women's fiction? You know, the Women's Fiction Writers Association definition, which I do agree with, but I think it goes beyond that, where women's fiction I think this is the marketing hat, more of the target audience. I am writing for a female audience between a certain age range. And I do have men who read my books, but the majority will be women. Um, And there is men's fiction. It's more popular over in the United Kingdom. So they actually have a men's fiction genre. But um, women's fiction, I don't see it ever having its own section in a bookstore. I don't even want it to have its own section in a bookstore. I think it should be mixed in there with regular fiction. But as you're poking through, it's going to most likely be a female who's going to pick it up. Yeah, I hear, I have people go, well, isn't it just romance? Because if there's romance in it, isn't it a romance? I mean, it's just so much, it's it's such a mystery. Because I think that it's romance, it's what, 90% is the, 99% is the female audience. So it's just expected that romance is 
it, a type of women's fiction because yeah, it appeals to a, a woman's audience. But I think women's fiction is more; it goes beyond than just romance. There's you know you, you can have elements of almost anything in women's fiction as long as it's just that it's more about that inner journey that's driving the story as opposed to the romance that's driving the story. That's interesting getting one of the founders takes on that. Your novels straddle genres. They include domestic suspense, family drama, and contemporary romance. Was this a mix that happened organically or did you purposely concoct this recipe for your novels? It was definitely organic And I think that has a lot to do with the type of stories that I like to read. I mean, I love to read straight out genres, your thrillers, your suspense, your straight romances, your straight women's fictions. But the stories that really stick with me for a long time are the ones that have a lot more, I guess, meat or substance to it. Uh, You take the Outlander series. Uh, where it definitely straddles genres. You'll take Colleen Hoover's books do the same thing. They, you know, she she's known for romance, but there's just so much more in her books than the romance. And those are the ones, at least for me, where I think about a lot longer than oh, the book's finished and you put it aside and then you move on to the next book. So, and and so I think that's the way when I'm writing is um, I'll probably always have some sort of romantic thread in my books. Uh, definitely a bit of mystery and suspense, but um, and some may lean more heavier toward the uh, the thriller side, and some will lean more heavy on the romance side. But um, which is, I think, why I kind of came up with my own genre, the domestic drama, because it does incorporate everything. You know, when you straddle everything, it's like you don't really fit in one spot. So, and um, so. For me, and I hope that's the way I leave it with my readers, is that when there's more substance or there's more in the book that they remember it. And I do know with my books, the the kind of the common theme I see in in reviews is that, especially with my standalones, is they they want more from the story because it becomes so invested in the characters. They want another book that features the characters because or for the story to continue and and that's a, even though I probably won't continue the stories it's a compliment you know it's a big yeah, compliment but, but they want to know what happens next what happens next exactly and you continue to produce a steady stream of fascinating books while you're raising a family how did you balance it all oh I didn't I gave up on balancing <laughs> a long time ago balancing is a bunch of Sleep. <laughs> you know, it is. It I really it. is. That I think anybody who says that they can perfectly balance, they are probably a very hardcore solid A personality and they're gonna probably skid and burn from exhaustion. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, it's because it, life throws things at you and I mean there's going to be certain times of the year where I'm going to have to dedicate more of my time for my family and other times of the year where especially when I'm on a super tight deadline when we're going through development to edits where I shut the door and I'm like you guys are on your own for dinner and I have to focus on this or as in my case it's like you get a health trauma thrown at you and 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 everything just goes out the window and and so so balance is almost kind of like a myth, and I think it's just a matter of just making sure that you don't run yourself into the ground one way or another. And and I and I think that's been my kind of my 
my struggle in trying to reach that goal is knowing when I'm doing too much of one thing and, and just to kind of pull back a little. You mentioned something had come up with your health. Do you, would you mind sharing with us? Uh, not at all. In um, June of 2019, three days before we were supposed to go on a three-week vacation to Europe, I had, standing in the middle of my kitchen, making coffee in the morning, I had an abdominal aortic dissection. Tore 10 inches down, straight down my aorta into my left iliac artery. And let me tell you, that pain is worse than childbirth. But um, I didn't know, it's been so long since I had a biology class, I'm like, what's the aorta? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I ended up in ICU for three days and through different CT scans, they found out that I also had an aneurysm in my right iliac artery a saccular protruding aneurysm off of my aorta, as well as an aneurysm up in my right shoulder, which was pretty massive. Genetic studies haven't shown anything, but um, there's, there's obviously something going on from a connective tissue standpoint. But with regards to the dissection itself, I was 50 at the time when it happened, which is young. And, um, and, then, and then even for it to happen to a woman, because it's mostly men in their 70s who get this. And so, so my doctor has found me very fascinating <laughs> with this. It took a good year, almost a year and a half, to recover from the dissection. So for that saccular aneurysm to seal itself off, you know, because we didn't want to do surgery. We wanted to just kind of wait to see if it would heal on its own, which is the best way. So now it's riddled with scar tissue, the aorta, but it is stronger than it is before. And actually mid-February, I just had um, the aneurysm in my right shoulder removed. So that's what I'm currently recovering from is I have three lovely scars and I they removed my um, subclavian artery and replaced it with an eight millimeter tube. But the, the good thing about it is once all the muscle tissue and everything heals is that because um, I've been on a huge restriction with regards to my heart rate, like I couldn't have it above 120 because I had to keep everything low. Did they not know about about deadlines? I know. <laughs> Seriously. The, the good thing through all this, I mean, aside from my family, which has been incredibly supportive, is my publisher and my agent have been beyond supportive. So far, I have made every single deadline, and it has been a, a, a godsend to actually have a manuscript to work on to keep my focus off of this. And it's actually been a benefit to kind of have lockdown happen while all this is happening because I couldn't go or travel anywhere. And it is, it's been so frustrating to be stuck within these walls here because when this happened, I was in the best shape of my life to go from that to go to suddenly not even being able to move and worried. And even then, I couldn't, when it initially happened, I couldn't raise my heart rate above 100, afraid of tearing more within the vascular system. And so, yes, so my huge, you know, kind of rah-rah right now is for anybody who has any sort of family history of any sort of aneurysms or things that they thought might have been a heart attack, but really wasn't, is like you talk to your doctors about getting a CT scan 
And we've already talked about that with my kids when they hit 40s. You go in there, like how women get their annual mammograms. I said, you talk to your doctor about getting, you know, at least every few years, getting a full body CT scan to see about the, the vascular system and the health of your aorta. I'm getting close to the other side right now. So it's just where I can get back to some semblance of normal. But in the process of this, I have had to, you talk about balance. I have had to condition my type A personality to be type B and throw a lot of stuff off my shoulders. So yeah, you, you get, you throw trauma in there, you throw anything. And, and I think this has been one of the huge things where that is with this happening is just balance is non-existent. It's just... Just trying to stay sane. <laughs> I just I just can't help but think if you would have gotten on that plane. Well, that's what they said is they said it's it, it, they said it's a great thing that it happened. Well, if it was going to happen, that it happened beforehand. And we were flying to Austria first. And it, my husband actually did the research while we were in the hospital. He goes, did you know that Austria actually has one of the top vascular hospitals? <laughs> I, I just remember the pain that I was in at that time and just picturing myself getting back on a plane to fly back here for treatment, just going, <sighs> that would not have been fun. Well, you look great and okay, you sound great. You. <laughs> so I'm... Yeah, very fortunate. And I, and I, unfortunately, I found one of the top cardiothoracic surgeons in the Bay Area here because especially the doing, fixing the artery and the subclavian artery, which is extremely rare to begin with, is he had to do some pretty... Pretty inventive surgery for that. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. congratulations on being on, <laughs> on that. Side of it. Yeah. You have a new book coming out. Well, the so the series, the No More series, is about three siblings, the Carson siblings, and um, an event that happened when they were younger, and how that event shaped their lives into the people that they are at the opening of the stories and as well as their interpretation of the event. So if you've watched uh, This Is Us or The Affair and how you know you get different perspectives. So the first book is the oldest uh, sibling's book, Olivia's, and uh, she was not present during the event. So anything she knows about it has been hearsay or secondhand information. And then that is No More Words, No More Lies is Lily, the youngest child, and she was in the middle of the event. It is what happened to her. So you get her full story in the second book, which will be out next, a year from May. And then third book is Lucas's, who's the middle child, and uh, without getting into details about him, is um, his perspective and what he did with regards to the event, which he witnessed at a distance. <laughs> was it always going to be a... This no more was, yes, it was uh, plotted and, sub and submitted to my publisher as a series, and they bought it as a series. The, the Everything series, uh, which has everything we keep, left behind, okay. and give was not plotted as a series. In fact, everything we <clears throat> keep was a standalone. And as my editor at the time and I were going through and doing the developmental edits, she's like, well, you can't leave this character down in Mexico. <laughs> he needs his own story. And so I'm like, okay. And it literally was over 24 hours. I wrote the outline for it, submitted a synopsis to my agent. We fixed it up. We sent it off to the editor and, um, and they bought that as well as all the breaking waves, which is a standalone that I had already written. 
And so they bought those two books. And so then when we did everything we left behind, I'm like, well, there's another character which was actually a huge fan favorite. And everything we give, I wrote for the fans, uh, which is Ian's story. And they wanted Ian's story. And so so that was the third book. And so that one was not plotted as a series. And and I think there's there's pros and cons to that as well as plotting an actual trilogy because when you plot a trilogy you've got to look at the overarching arc and then as well as the arcs that are happening and the plots within each story. So the Everything series probably could be read as standalones, maybe. I mean it helps to know what you want, you know, what happened beforehand, but the No More series definitely the books are interconnected and so you really need to know what happens in one book before you read the next book. So when you're plotting, how long does it take? Well, it, it takes about, because when I, when I plot, I'm going into a pretty detailed outline, and I'd say it takes a couple weeks per book. And then when I actually do the fast first draft of a book, depending how much life interferes in that whole balancing issue, <laughs> I could get a first draft done in three months, but I don't, since I'm now a type B personality, <laughs> I, I don't force myself to finish real fast anymore. I would love to put out more than one book a year. And I think once my kids are off in college, I think I might be able to do that. Uh, But right now it's just one book a year. And so I give myself about six months to do that first draft. So No More Words, which publishes this July, yeah, that was turned in last July. And then it takes about a year for production. But I immediately, since the outline was already done for No More Lies, it was easier to just dive right into the book for writing it. So, What does your writing day look like? Uh, it's all over the place. <laughs> but um, it, And it depends what what I am writing. If it is the like the, the initial first draft, I have to write first thing in the morning when I'm fresh. I got to just sit down and I have to pound out the words. And I go back and forth between typing it on the laptop or actually doing longhand. And, um, and, and it depends on if I have to get really connected with a chapter, I will start out longhand first because it, it's old school. I just feel more connected to the paper that way. After I get the first draft done and I'm doing revisions before I send it in for submission, then I'll print it out and I'll work on a couple chapters a day where I'm, that's where I sit and pick apart every single line. I will look at the chapter as a whole, then I'll look at the, you know, a section of the book as a whole to make sure that the threads stay consistent through it. So when I'm just writing a first draft, I'm probably just spending two to four hours a day on writing. But um, afterwards, when I'm doing that uh, revision, and even when I'm doing developmental edits, that's like a full-time job. That's like eight to 10 hours a day. Tell us about the Tiki Lounge. Yes, the Tiki Lounge started about five years ago, or actually it started, I think, right before my first book oh. published. Actually, it started out as um, like my street team initially. Oh. And so so it was really small, and it hasn't been until just the past couple of years where I've expanded it more into 
a reader group just because I myself am pulling back from Facebook and the Facebook page because Facebook just has not been friendly on our pages. And plus, when it's in a group, not only do more of the members see it, but it, it's easier to engage in a conversation. And a lot of stuff that like I, I like to share with the, my readers, it's like I, I'm not, I don't want it out there in the public where it can be shared anyways. And so that's why they get kind of like the secret peeks at different things that the others wouldn't, and even you don't get in my newsletter. Uh, so since I have evolved the Tiki Lounge into more of a, a, a reader, a top reader group, I actually have other smaller groups that are my street teams, depending on the book and the series. <laughs> I, mean, I could just cut and slice that right up. Um, we talk a lot on this podcast about camaraderie among authors. How have those relationships helped Oh, I don't think I'd be able to do this without all the connections. Thank goodness for social media. That's all I can say. I mean, otherwise, it, it, unless you go to a conference, it's really hard to meet other authors or early writers or even when I was very green, meeting people who are more experienced and who've been more than generous to pay it forward. It's nice to be able to interact with people who have done even better than I have to where you can aspire to similar goals, knowing that they can be accomplished, knowing how hard you need to work and knowing that nothing is really handed to you. On that. In your view, what is good writing? In my view, good writing is when you no longer see the writing. This is when I'm not really thinking about the writing anymore. Or, or maybe a sentence might catch me and I'm, I'll be like, oh, I love the way that they just spun that because of the imagery that it projected. So this year, I'm making more time for myself. I'm actually doing the Goodreads Reading Challenge for the first time ever. Ah, <laughs> so what are you reading right now? I'm on the third book in Sarah Moss's Court of uh, Thorns and Roses series. I picked it up because Ron Moore picked it up. Uh, Ron Moore is the one who's done Outlander, Battlestar Galactica, For All Mankind. And so he and Sarah are currently right now writing the uh, pilot script, uh, and they're going to be bringing it to Hulu. And so I just wanted to read this nice. beforehand. I used to read a lot of fantasy, and this is, I think, the first fantasy series that I have read in a very long time. And I realized, I'm like, I kind of miss this, so... <laughs> What's the best writing advice you've received? Disregard the rules. I mean, there's rules for everything, for how to open up a chapter. You know, something's got to happen within the first five pages. It's like you know, no no info dumping, no backstory, no flashbacks. I mean, I, I've read manuscripts where, and this is like for beta reading, where there is there are absolutely no flashbacks and no backstory at all. And, and, and the author's wondering what's wrong with the story. And it's like, well, you haven't fleshed out the characters. And, and, and it's this fear that if you include any backstory, and even agents will come back with their, their opinions like, oh, you can't have backstory. I'm like, yes, you can have backstory. Everybody has a backstory. And sometimes for me, that's the most fascinating aspect of a book is what happened to the character to get them to what, why are they acting the way they are right now? Now, what are their motivations? What are their wounds? So I think that the more you write, the more I think it, it becomes instinctual as to where to place the backstory, as where to to put the flashbacks. And when that doesn't work, you have your developmental editor who will help you. But it's it really comes down to write write the story you want to write the way you want to write it. And it can always be tweaked and fixed after that. 
Thank you so much. Nice talking to you, Chris. To learn more about Carrie and her books, go to CarrieLonsdale.com. Writer's Table podcast music by Pavel Yudin and photography by Casey Meineke. If you like what you're hearing, please hit the subscribe button and consider leaving a review. Thank you.